My name is Patrick McGinnis, and I'm the guy who invented the term FOMO. That's short for fear of missing out. Today, FOMO is an epidemic, and it's changing us so much that it sort of feels like we're evolving into a new species. But FOMO doesn't have to take over your life. You can find the power to choose what you actually want and the courage to miss out on the rest. I'll show you how right here on FOMO Sapiens. FOMO. FOMO. Welcome to FOMO Sapiens, the show about finding the power to choose what you actually want in business and in life and the courage to miss out on everything else. I'm your host, Patrick McGinnis, also known as the creator of the term FOMO, and I'm coming at you from AW360 Studios here in the global capital of FOMO, New York City. Fewer industries change more quickly than fashion. Today's hot brand can be completely passe tomorrow, and new styles can come out of nowhere and drive millions or even billion dollars of commerce. But at a time when traditional retailers are struggling, Creating a breakout brand that can cut through the noise and succeed in a changing retail environment isn't easy. Today we're going to be talking about fashion, specifically how trends are spotted, translated from the streets to the shelf, and then marketed in a world of social media and influencers who want to use FOMO to get you online or in stores to buy that hot new look. And my guest today knows all about how that is done. He is the creator of a cult brand that is the talk of fashionistas from New York and London to Tokyo, Paris, and beyond. Jack Carlson is the founder of Rowing Blazers, a brand that can be seen prepping up everybody from Macklemore and Will Ferrell to the Winklevoss twins and even yours truly. He is a three-time member of the U.S. national rowing team and a world championships bronze medalist. He has also won the Henley Royal Regatta and the head of the Charles Regatta. Jack, I actually call him Dr. Jack, earned his PhD in archaeology at Oxford, where he was a Clarendon scholar and has, uh, has his undergrad from Georgetown's School of Foreign Service, which is where I studied, um, and it's how I met him. And his research and interests include, listen to this one, visual trappings of status, belonging and power, heraldry and vexillology, Roman and Chinese archaeology, menswear, and Neapolitan pizza. He is the author of the acclaimed book, Rowing Blazers, which I have in my house and you should have in yours, and is also, of course, the author of many academic and popular articles. So, uh, Jack, welcome to FOMO Sapiens. Thank you for that intro. That was wild. Well, it's, you know, first of all, did I, I mean, I learned things about myself. (laughs) Vexillology is not a term that I uh, throw out every day. What is vexillology? It's the study of flags. Okay. They, I, I would go with flagology, but... Um, <laughs> it's a little Latin in there. Okay. So you just gave me FOMO because I think about how I'm spending my time and I think, okay, I should be studying flags, heraldry, and Neapolitan pizza. <laughs> but um, what is giving you FOMO right now? A lot of things. Um, since launching the brand Rowing Blazers about 14, 15 months ago, it has taken over my life pretty much. Um, I kind of had this romantic vision when I was training on the U.S. team and I was getting ready to launch this brand. I was sort of prepping and I would come up to New York once a week and meet with factories and look at samples and so on. I kind of had this romantic vision that, okay, I'll start this brand and I'll write a couple books on the side and maybe I'll still have time for a little bit of archaeology mixed in there. And it has just been flat out. It has been nonstop. And, you know, I think that's sort of what it takes. But certainly I have FOMO about 
all of the things I'd like to be writing, turning my PhD into a book. Um, a lot of sort of academic and writing kind of things give me FOMO every day, you know, and I try to sometimes carve out a little time for those things and it, my plans just get foiled every time. I also have FOMO for sure within the business, you know, um, we have an email, hello at rowingblazers.com. I should not be putting it out there because it just gets, it's just overflowing every day with a lot of cool opportunities, um, you know, with other brands that want to collaborate, opportunities to do pop-ups in other cities, stores, you know, that are interested in carrying our stuff. And it's just, it's impossible it to, never ends to do it all. Right? It never ends. And, you know, I... I'm a pretty ambitious guy. I want to take opportunities when they're presented, but I'm learning. You know, you just can't do it all. Yeah. You have to say no. And lately, that's almost been kind of the mantra: is like saying no to almost everything. Yes. But of course, you know, it gives you FOMO. I I get it. I, I think anybody who's started something or done something. You think back to the times where you didn't have anything going on. And for you, Jack, I remember you called me from a, um, what was it? What's the burger place? Uh, In-N-Out Burger. In-N-Out Burger. Sorry, I'm an East Coaster. In-N-Out Burger in Chula Vista, California. Am I right about that? And you were working out of this In-N-Out Burger on your book and this idea. And you, I mean, that is, that's no glamour in that. Even though, you know, it's a tasty (laughs) burger that, you know, you look at where you are now with all the things you're doing we'll be talking about. And so it's easy to want to say yes to everything when you suddenly have tons of opportunity. And I've kind of lived the same thing. You remember the time when you wished somebody would call you. And at the same time, just for self-preservation, you cannot, you cannot say yes to everybody. You, you sort of have to make room in your life. Mm-hmm. Um, so before we get going, I, I, for those of you who are not familiar with rowing blazers, I'm wearing a rowing blazer here. I'd actually, I don't know the style. Looks great number. on you, man. I don't know the style number, but it is, <laughs> I, I, I love it. I bought one of these one from your initial run, but mm-hmm. what is a rowing blazer? What is this brand about? What is this heritage about? Why did you do this? Like, break it down for us. Yeah, well, a couple of things. First of all, a lot of people don't realize that in some ways, every blazer is a rowing blazer. The blazer comes from the sport of rowing. So nowadays, Pretty much everybody, no matter where you're from, what you do, whether you're a guy, girl, no matter what part of the world or the country you live in, pretty much everyone has some kind of a blazer in their closet. Yes. But what people don't realize, for the most part, is that the blazer originated in the sport of rowing, and it was really like a warm-up jacket or a windbreaker, or it was almost like the hoodie of its time. Mm -hmm. Guys would throw it on to jog down to practice in the morning. They would wear it even in the boat while they're warming up if it was a chilly day. And they would sometimes even race wearing the blazer um, if it was particularly chilly out. So it was originally a very practical piece of sportswear. And guys grew very attached to these jackets. It was almost like, you know, kind of 1950s letterman's jackets where guys would wear them all the time. It was kind of a status symbol. They were like the big man on campus. And so guys started wearing these blazers to class, to social events, to lunch, to dinner. And it was a very almost like rebellious kind of thing. It was very casual. I mean, Oxford, even today in 2018, there are black tie and even white tie. Oxford University. Oxford University, yeah. yeah. And Cambridge University is the same. Yeah. All the time. So wearing a blazer in the mid-19th century was a very rebellious thing. And these jackets would be made in the college or team colors. Um, 
and would have, sometimes they'd have an embroidery on the pocket or they'd have some kind of Latin motto under the lapel or the buttons would have, you know, some college heraldry on them. Um, so they were very loud. They were, you know, they were kind of, you were making a statement when you were wearing it. And one of these very brightly colored jackets, which was bright red or blazing red, actually gave us the word blazer. Wow. So originally that word actually just meant these particular bright red jackets for one particular club. And the word uh, gradually sort of came to mean something bigger and bigger. First, all Cambridge rowing jackets. Then it went over to Oxford and to London and Durham, and it meant any kind of rowing jacket. And eventually, rugby players wanted to have that kind of jacket too, and cricket players and soccer players. And it grew and grew and grew and came across the Atlantic. And, you know, guys on American college campuses started adopting blazers, some more conservative, some in their college colors as well. And that is the story of the blazer. And I thought, you know, that's a really interesting story. There's a great sort of heritage there. There could be a brand here. Um, you know, sort of shifting gears a little bit when you ask kind of what is the brand all about? What is Rowing Blazers all about? You know, it's kind of taking that heritage and it's, it's being obsessive about doing things the right way. So like all of our blazers, like your blazer there, it doesn't have a vent. It's not lined in the back. It has a three roll two silhouette. These are all features of the original blazers. And it's all hand tailored. Um, it's all hand tailored here in the US mm -hmm. because I like to go to the workshop and like work kind of obsessively with the people who are making the garments to make sure they're sewing it the way I want them to do it. So it's, it's really obsessing over authenticity and doing things the right way. Not just with blazers, but rugby shirts is another big category for us. So um, obsessing over, you know, having the right weight of fabric, having the right hand feel, being very true to the originals. Right. But at the same time, it's having a sense of youthfulness and accessibility and relevance. So it's kind of combining some aspects of preppy and some aspects of street into one thing. Um, it's simultaneously very authentic, but also very youthful and accessible. And that's, I think that's really interesting and it's not easy to do because no. if you go to, what's your, your Instagram's Rowing Blazers, right? At Rowing Blazers. At Rowing Blazers. So I follow all your Instagram. I'm liking all the pictures. And Thank you. <laughs> you're welcome. And you have this combination of, you'll have a picture of some very tall Dutch person who's impossibly blonde wearing the look. And then the next day you'll have somebody from New York City who's completely taking the look in a totally different direction mm -hmm. with more of a street look or mm -hmm. um, more of an urban look. And um, you have this really interesting combination of different types of people who are relating to the brand and celebrities and all kinds of people. And you're big in Japan. And it's really interesting. And you have used social media and, and influencers in a really interesting way. But at the same time, as you mentioned, authenticity or genuineness um, is a big part of what you're trying to transmit. You yourself are, I would say, the embodiment of the brand. So how do you use social media and influencers? How do you keep it real with them? What is the way that it integrates into your brand story? Well, I would say, you know, we are kind of cultural omnivores. That's a big part of what the brand is all about. Um, you know, and I think that that's something that's happening in the world more generally 
it's not as easy to kind of categorize people or their, you know, a person's particular style anymore. You can't just say, oh, this person's preppy. This person's really street, you know. It's like, what do those words even mean anymore? Right. I think some of those barriers are starting to break down. And I'd hope that Rowing Blazers is trying to help that along, help that process happen a little bit. We've been very lucky in that um, we've had a lot of very organic, uh, you know, for lack of a better term, kind of celebrities. Um, like me? Like you? Yeah, I mean, you like know. you? Like, I sold exactly... 0.5 blazers by if somebody bought it and returned it a week later when they saw <laughs> they bought it then they saw you wearing it then they brought it back they they're like i don't want to have anything luck. to do too with too this guy all right <laughs> um no but we've been very lucky to have people like uh will ferrell macklemore um ezra koenig from vampire weekend um uh vic mensa who's uh, you know rapper people from all these different genres um, organically actually kind of like discovering the brand. I mean, the Macklemore thing that you mentioned happened like a week and a half ago. One of our interns just texted our you know group thread and was like, hey, have you seen the latest Macklemore video? I think he's wearing one of our rugbies. I looked at it. I was like, that's definitely one of our rugbies. So when I'm asking the whole team, I was like, did Macklemore's stylist reach out to anybody? Did, did we gift him this? Does anybody know like how this came about? And then... Basically, we're like looking in the Shopify backend. We're a very small team still, you know, but we're like, okay, what's Macklemore's real name? Okay, it's Ben Haggerty. And we're like, no one's thinking when they see an order from Ben Haggerty in Seattle, Washington. No one's, you know, immediately like, oh, yeah, that's Macklemore, you know, which we should. But like, but we're like, oh, yeah, Ben Haggerty, Seattle, Washington. He's been a customer like multiple orders for the past several months. Just totally organic, you know, paid full price. No one pinged him, whatever, like totally organic. So for us, that's like the best thing is when when these sort of like influencer, celebrity, tastemaker, whatever you want to call it, things happen totally organically. And by the way, I mean, we're huge fans of Macklemore. We're huge fans of like Vampire Weekend, Vic Mensa. So it's great that it's like, it happens where it's actually sort of like relevant to us. Um, but I think, you know, that comes out of having strong social media presence. Right. What, what turns me off is when someone is just writing to us and just being like, hey, I'm an influencer. Can I get free stuff? <laughs> it's kind of like, well, we don't really need that because we have a lot of really cool people who are just organically following us anyway and liking what we're doing. Yeah, that that is something that you can't buy, right? You see, I, I've done some 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 discussions on the show before. We were talking about Firefest, which is this music festival that it's one of my favorite things ever. <laughs> Firefest. I mean, it it happened shortly either before or after we actually formally like launched Rowing Blazers as a brand, and it was like at a time when I was you know, up all night. I mean, I still am, but like working 20 hour days or whatever. And Firefest got me through like a good week of time, just like reading (laughs) those articles, just like literally crying with laughter. I mean, it's mean to say, but it was just such a good story. It's like you couldn't write it It, that good. The problem is if you, if you don't know about Firefest and you start reading about it, eight hours later, when you emerge from your like, at least a hole, 
it, it's it's the story. It's kind of everything that's wrong with influencers. And as an investor in consumer brands myself that do use influencers in, in a really powerful way, um, like a company like an Ipsy, which has mm. a really, I would say, tells a story in a very genuine way. Um, it is. It's really hard to get the mix of yes, maybe we've asked you to do this, or you're you know you're a quote unquote influencer that does this as a business. Vis-a-vis the people who are actually just real people out there who are wearing your mm-hmm. stuff and it looks amazing and you can feature them, or you have somebody like Macklemore who just finds this product, but you cannot buy that. You cannot buy that. This is totally you know what they call earned media, or it's things you don't pay for, mm-hmm. and that um, it's hard to replicate or plan for because you could have a situation where you know tomorrow Justin Bieber rocks one of your looks. I mean, which I think he could probably do reasonably well. Um, for and sure. Then you're your whole store gets ransacked you run out of out of out of inventory and you're not able to meet the demand so there there is also kind of that that unpredictability of the whole thing but that that is the that is commerce today and if brands aren't willing to play that game and aren't willing to take those risks or at least be ready to face those challenges they're not going to make it into the big leagues because you're going for mm-hmm. pulp brand and you're scaling um, and this is the kind of stuff that kind of can break you out Yeah, it's really interesting to think about because I try to learn a lot of lessons from streetwear because we're not really a streetwear brand. I mean, we're making like rugby shirts, blazers, polo shirts, but we do have that following to some extent. And, you know, I try to pick up a lot of lessons from what they're doing right. I mean, Supreme is one of the most valuable, if not the most valuable, you know, brand in the world in that space. Yes. And, you know, Supreme would never, uh, you know, like pay an influencer to wear their stuff. Like, why would they ever do that? They don't do any, you know, at least that I see paid digital marketing, you know. And it's like at the opposite end of the spectrum, you have a traditional e-commerce brand where their whole strategy for scaling and growing and customer acquisition is all through paid digital marketing. And, you know, it's kind of like trying to cherry pick the best practices and lessons from those two different worlds in a way, you know, and I think the customer in general, our customer is, is pretty smart, is pretty worldly, is pretty switched on and can smell it from a million miles away if something is not genuine, if something is not real, you know, um, so that's an important kind of lesson for us. And even though we're doing sort of preppy, staple kind of things, you know, some of those lessons about doing limited edition drops, um, you know, about it's actually better if someone just really is a customer and really rocks this for real rather than, like, paying someone to wear this right. are, are big lessons for us. And we've seen a lot of value in those. Let me ask you about this limited yeah. edition strategy because yeah. we did a project – a collaboration, I think, is the correct term with J. Crew, mm-hmm. um, which was super successful and very much so. When I saw that, first of all, I I was the guy who spent all his money at J. Crew from the for probably about five to six years. That was the only place I shopped, and then I never walked into the store again. Mm-hmm. Right? It's a company that had. I mean, you think about in the two thousand eight um, inauguration, the Obama family, uh, Michelle and, and 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 Malia and Sasha, all wore J. Crew, and it yeah, was like big time. It, it was this big brand, but it almost felt cult, and it felt so contemporary. Mm-hmm. And and the, they're struggling now due to you know too much debt, and there's changes in leadership, and um, Jenna Lyons left, and all these things that have made 
it's For very sure. clear the company is struggling. But you chose to associate yourself with J. Crew, which is a company that probably 20 years ago was the rowing blazers of its time. Did you see <laughs> it? You know what I mean? Like, did you see any risk in doing that? Or how did you kind of think about that? Well, it was a conversation that our team had, for sure, um, and figuring out the best way to do it. I really like J. Crew as a company. Like you, I grew up with it. Yeah. Um, and it, it was for us, it was a matter of figuring out the right way, uh, the right way to work together. And, you know, one of the big things from the beginning, from our side, that was important was having it be limited edition. And I think maybe that that was maybe sort of puzzling to to some of the folks at J. Crew, where it's like, well, why wouldn't you want to sell you know tens of thousands of units and be in these different stores? And you know, for us as a brand, is actually more important to have it be really cool, to have it be limited, and that's in a way sort of what I think we brought to the table with that collaboration. So the collaboration was three styles of rugby shirts. You know, it wasn't. Um, it wasn't like super tiny numbers, you know, but it was not like thousands and thousands of units. But it sold out. The men's, I think, sold out in like a matter of hours. I think the women's sold out in like a day and a half. Um, but for sure, J. Crew was not anticipating that because, you know, we had like a shared marketing plan and they were like, okay, we're going to do this social media post like, a week after it comes out, we'll yeah. do another email or whatever, like two weeks after it comes out. And it was like, guys, it's two days later. It's it's all gone, <laughs> you know, like so obviously they're not going to do those Instagram posts. Um, but it was a really cool thing for us to tap into their audience. They have a huge network, you know, for sure of of a captive audience that I think has a large overlap with who our customer is or who one of our customers is, I should say. Um, and it was cool to take some of those sort of like more street kind of lessons and apply it to this like semi-preppy product. Yeah. Um, so it was a really cool project to work on. But for sure, it was it was a conversation that we had. I think, you know, since probably the days when both you and I were just spending all our money in J. Crew, you know, the world has changed a little bit too. Like, that was a very preppy time, for lack of a better term. And I think, you know, the connotations of, like, what's preppy have kind of changed. Yes. Now people, the first thing they think of is Vineyard Vines, which is, like, totally not what we're about at Rowing Blazers. It's not exactly really what preppy meant back in the days of, like, J. Crew, the glory days of J. Crew and rugby Ralph Lauren and that kind of thing. And I think nowadays, too, it's like... Okay, someone might wear like a really sort of preppy looking like polo shirt or rugby shirt, but they might have like some sick sneakers and they might have like a supreme lighter in their pocket yeah. or something like that. People are mixing and matching these things in a way that just was not really happening in like, you know, 05 to 09 or whatever. So that's part of what we're trying to tap into as well. It's interesting too because. I think I just think about my own consumption. I used to be the person who would buy almost like disposable clothing. And mm -hmm. as I, with change in times, and I think environmentalism and just getting sick of having so much stuff, yeah. I would rather spend you know more money on a 
a rolling blazer that I'm going to have for 20 years mm-hmm. and will always be a classic then to go out and buy a bunch of stuff I'm going to throw sure. away. Um, but we love you, J. Crew, and um, <laughs> We do. Yeah. We do. And and I want to see J. Crew succeed, so I'm glad that rolling blazers lent some of its cool to the brand. Hey, they they lent us some of their cool, too, Definitely. so it, it was great. And I think you're absolutely right, too, about, like, you know, just, you know, disposable clothing, fast fashion. I think... The consumer cares a lot more, more than ever today, about kind of like the story behind what they're wearing. And part of that is like where it's made, how it's made. You have brands like Everlane and Noah that kind of pioneered some of that of like being totally transparent about like this is where this was made. Here's photos of like it being made. Here's how much water was used in it. You know, all of these. And Patagonia, of course, is, is big on that as well. Um, that's really important, more important than ever, I think, to the customer. Um, you know, kind of where it's made, the fabric that it's made from. And I think also just, like, what's the story behind what you're wearing? I mean, I think in a kind of weird way, and we're working on a couple of other collaborations with more sort of heritage brands, if that makes sense, that are coming out in the next few months. But sometimes those brands don't even necessarily realize, like, sort of what they're sitting on in terms of, the history and the cool stuff they have in their archives. And I think actually like the consumer, sometimes even like the more like streetwear consumer will know some of this vintage product. Like it's actually really cool to wear like a vintage LL Bean or J Crew or like super old Ralph Lauren or even like J Press or some of these super like heritage brands they have a lot of cool vintage stuff or cool stuff in their archives that like, if you know, you know. Yeah. And I think people care more about that than ever. There's like, there's a story, there's some meaning behind what they're wearing. And the thing is, is uh, I, I heard this, I heard the other day on Monocle, which is my favorite, my favorite podcast, that Burberry, 20 years ago, was called Burberry's. Mm-hmm. And then they cut the S, Tune into this, this this iconic watch that they've been using, which is I think is a bit tired now. But they were able to reinvent themselves, and so all of these brands that maybe are like a, what's this um, uh, Pendleton wool mm-hmm. things that are classic American icon iconic brands can be reinvented, and brands like you can help them to do it. One thing I just want to sh- shift gears here yeah. towards um, another thing you've done with marketing that I think is really interesting is that you've opened up a pop up shop in Lower Manhattan. I've been to. Twice or three times, I'm going in tomorrow. And um, you have created. You know, I, it's. I recently went to see the the um, the Ses- not Sesame Street, the Mr. Rogers Neighborhood movie. Oh yeah. And when I left, which is great and highly recommended, but when you walk out, they have a display, and you can Instagram yourself in front of this, and it's great viral marketing. And the same way that there's this new kind of concept of these museums, the Museum of Ice Cream, or yep. the, I think it's called the Museum of Color, um, or something like that. Where people go, they have these experiences, but really it's also not, not, not just commerce or not just having experience, but it's also about sharing in these highly attractive settings where you can take cool pictures mm-hmm. and share. And your store does that really well. So how did you, is that, I assume this was all conscious and you thought about this, but how does the store fit into the story? Did you have this idea in mind of creating this place where people could post iconic images of your product and of themselves? Well, it started, we did a little experiment, basically, which we did a pop-up on Rivington Street uh, in October. It was supposed to be one week long, and then the people who had the space after us dropped out, so it ended up being 12 days long. And 
that completely blew our minds. I mean, it way exceeded all of our expectations. I think we opened at 11 or yeah, 11 a.m. or 10 a.m. on a Wednesday. And it was right next to Morgan Stern's ice cream. Uh, but I remember when we're like getting ready, putting the final touches on things in the store, the first time we did this pop-up next to Morgan Stern's, there was kind of like a little crowd of people outside. And I just assumed they were there for Morgan Stern's ice cream. And I was like, wow, it's like people are eating ice in cream. October. People are eating ice cream. It was warm. I mean, and was, I was like, I people remember, are going yeah. kind of like early in the day, like 10 a.m. for ice cream, you know? And then when we opened the door, they all came inside and they all knew like exactly what they wanted. And it was like kind of a line, you know, it wasn't like a line, but it was like 20 people waiting outside the store waiting to come in. And I was like, who are, we're not like Stussy. I mean, we're, we're selling like rugby shirts and polo shirts, you know, and button down blue Oxford shirts. Uh, But that was a really mind blowing thing. And it's not like we hyped it up massive. We just have our Instagram and Facebook. And um, that was a really cool thing, though. And it basically just went from there. That's where we launched rugby shirts at the Rivington Street store. And I remember, actually, as we were putting those final touches, I was like, we've made a lot of rugby shirts. I wonder (laughs) what the heck we're going to do with all these rugby shirts. (laughs) And I think, again, like at the end of the second day, we were sold out of all but like one style. And I'm on the phone with the factory being like, how quickly can we get more rugby shirts? Um, it was a really amazing experience. Our online sales went crazy during that time we had the pop-up open. And I think it's from people going into the store, taking an Instagram, someone on the other side of the world, seeing the Instagram, going to our website, and then maybe they buy something. You know, it's like word of mouth. It's again, it's it's a little bit like when someone famous or really cool happens to be like a genuine customer that's i think more powerful than like oh yeah we paid like this celebrity a bunch of money to you know do the shoot with us it's like more powerful people know it's real if someone's like oh yeah my cousin is there in the store taking like an instagram video the store looks really cool let me go on the site it's like that carries more weight with the customer than any kind of like paid, you know, marketing thing. Um, so ever since that 12-day really successful pop-up for us in October, I've been kind of like ear to the ground looking for a cool space to do something a little bit longer term. And this opportunity presented itself on the corner of Grand and Center, so it's kind of between Soho and Little Italy, um, where a menswear store used to be called Odin. I walked by a million times and thought that that's... nobody walked into. By the way, I mean, not, I hate to say it, it's just it's a hard spot to. I think like when you opened it there, my thought was like that these guys will do it because of their because people seek them out. But it's not like an obvious position to open a store. Yeah, I mean, I don't know. It's uh, it's been really good for us. It's it's right on the corner, and it's one thing that I really wanted to look for was all glass front. I think yeah. one thing when Odin was in there, they had a lot of stuff and shelves like facing outwards in the windows. One thing about Rivington is it was all glass. So it was very tiny, but we would leave one light on at night and I'd walk by after we were closed and people would be pressed up against the glass looking inside. So that was one thing that I was definitely looking for is I want people to be able to walk by and like look inside, not look at a display in the window, but look and see the world inside. 
and be like, oh, wow, that's cool. That's interesting. That's, I haven't seen a store like that before. Um, so that's one thing that, that was you know, on my agenda, top of my list. When I went in the space, I was like, there's no way we're going to be able to afford this. I said to my friend who's the real estate agent, I was like, I'm not even going inside because this is just ridiculous. And he was like, no, I think we can make it work. We were able to, we closed our office. We moved our office into the back of the store. We closed our warehouse. We now do all our online fulfillment from the store. We have all our inventory in the basement. We figured out ways to make it work. And it's been so, so good. And it's been the same thing again, where like our online traffic, our online sales actually goes like through the roof when we have the store, which is kind of a a crazy thing. But again, it's like, it's a billboard. It's, um, it's experiential. And I think people get the brand so much more too. It's like, you can go on our website. We try to do, you know, a good job of telling the brand story of mixing in weird, quirky, vintage things to give a sense of what the brand is all about. But nothing hits home like actually walking into the space and walking into the world. So it's been it's been super successful for us. Something else we've done is having other brands in the space with us because it's huge, which helps defray, you know, some of the rent, but also it brings in new people. It brings in fans of other brands that are in some ways not like our brand at all. And it's actually great to see how people then sort of come into our world, our customer kind of cross-pollinates with theirs. It's been a really, really cool experience. And we're trying to extend how long we have it because it's it's been so good. Yeah, and it's 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 a cool space. I, I like as I said, I, I've been there before and it it always when I walk in, the first thing I thought I have is like I was talking to Jack at a burger shop. A fast food restaurant <laughs> in Chula Vista, California, a couple of years ago, and here he is with. He's created. I mean, it really is sort of like if I took Jack Carlson and sort of like <laughs> turn him into like a, a store. It's like visiting with Jack, Jack's world. So we try to have a lot of cool artifacts and weird, unexpected things on the walls. Dexology I mean, and Harold. We have some flags in there. I mean, we have like vintage foosball tables. Yeah. We have like ping pong table. It's a real kind of clubhouse vibe, but again, it's kind of taking our idea of like, it's sort of preppy, but in a cooler, more youthful, more accessible way. It's like, we call it the clubhouse, but it's a clubhouse anyone can walk into and hopefully feel at home and find something that they're into, if that kind of makes sense. It does, completely. And I think if you live in New York City or in the area, or you're coming through, at the end, we'll, we'll get the information, but I, I highly recommend people to check it out. Appreciate it. Now, just to, to, to sum things up here, this is the show about finding <laughs> the power to choose what you actually want and the courage to miss out on the rest. And what I think is really uh, inspiring about your story is, I mean, to, from the outside, it looks so obvious. It's like, okay, of course Jack is doing this. Um, but I'm sure there were times when you had no idea that you were going to do it. You were studying archaeology, for Pete's sake. Um, and, you know, maybe you'll do that again later at some point. Um, but how, what is your advice to people who are, and I think you're, you're good at a lot of things. You are, you're an interesting guy. You have lots of different interests. You could, due to FOMO, basically be completely unfocused and do a million different things. But you have been able to choose a path that is, I think, both rewarding sort of spiritually and, and, and intellectually, but also financially and has tremendous upside for you. How do you choose that thing and leave everything else to the side? What's the secret? It's really hard. You know, I started, though, as in, in some ways as a 10% entrepreneur 
plug for Patrick McGinnis's book, everybody. Um, you know, which I, is what? Which is the 10% entrepreneur. Starting on the side, starting oh. business part-time. What, how did I start? Yeah, so I started really, um, I was doing a PhD at Oxford and I probably spent 10% of my time working on this crazy book project that was called Rowing Blazers. I had really, in some ways, no idea what I was doing, but it really was like about 10% of my time I gave to that. Uh, the book came out. The book did very well. Um, it was never my main focus. Shortly after the book came out, you know, I basically, which I had been doing also a little bit on the side, was I was um, a member of the U.S. National Rowing Team. I started doing that full-time in 2015, um, and my 10% sort of switch, you sort of changed, and it was working on kind of taking the concept from the book and turning it into a brand, turning it into the brand that's now Rowing Blazers. And you're exactly right. I mean, we would train in the, the Olympic Training Center in Chula Vista, in uh, just south of San Diego, near the Mexican border. And when I, you know, had downtime, I would go to the In-N-Out Burger in Chula Vista. It would be me, and it would be Border Patrol agents in there. No one else really from the U.S. team went there, for probably for obvious reasons. But I was the coxswain, so as long as I was at weight, I could eat whatever I wanted. But that was like my makeshift office, you know? And for like an hour here or an hour there during the week, I would work on the concept for this brand, what products do we want to start with, what's the strategy, you know, e-commerce, wholesale, brick and mortar. And I would like gradually figure that out, literally from an In-N-Out Burger in Chula Vista. We trained in the warmer months in Princeton, New Jersey. I would come up on Wednesday afternoons from New York City. We trained seven days a week. So it was like literally I couldn't come up for a day. I could come up for like a few hours. Um, on a Wednesday afternoon, and I would look at our latest samples. I'd look at, like, buttons. I'd look at all that. And it was like a 10% project. And when eventually it sort of had enough momentum, and when some of the other things that I had going on, like training on the national team, uh, you know, started to not be as, you know, kind of as much of a focus anymore, it was like, okay, it's time to kind of strike when the iron's hot. Let's change gears my girlfriend and I moved to New York City. Um, again, we had no idea sort of what we were really getting ourselves into to a large extent, but we both felt that it was it was time, and it was time to take it from like 10% to 100%. And it's been 100%, you know, now for a, about two years, right? Like I moved here about two years ago. The brand actually launched publicly, you know, like, or the website launched, you know, um, to the world about 15 months ago. So it's, it's been a crazy adventure, but it's like I started, it started as 10%. And after a while of it being kind of 10% of my time and attention and, and energy, when it started to look like, okay, we can actually make this into something. That's when it was like, okay, let's make this a hundred percent. Yeah. Yeah. Makes tons of sense. Okay. Uh, that's good advice. Obviously I believe it. Exactly. <laughs> um, where where can we find out more about you, Rowing Blazers? Where's your store? Give us all the coordinates that we need for you. Yeah, our site is rowingblazers.com. Our physical store here in New York City is 161 Grand Street. That's the corner of Grand and Center between Soho and Nolita um, and Little Italy. 
Uh, our Instagram is at Rowing Blazers. My Instagram is Jack Carlson. That's easy. Okay. That's easy, yeah. Perfect. Um, and, um, you know, I want to thank Jack for being here. I think for me, the takeaway from today's conversation wasn't just about, uh, obviously, very interesting points on how to market a brand in a genuine way, but also, at the end, talking about how you can actually live your dreams in a part-time way as a way to figure out if something works. I call that 10% entrepreneurship. Some people call it a side hustle. But, um, you know, Jack would call it Rowing Blazers today. This is a company that he started on the side from an In-N-Out burger and turned into a book and now a thriving, really cool cult brand that is scaling every day. And so if you do have a dream um, that's entrepreneurial, rather than jumping in full time and making it an all or nothing proposition, consider starting on the side as a 10% entrepreneur. And uh, over time, you'll be amazed that the pieces will all come together. And uh, if the business plan makes sense, you can actually turn it into something real. And with that, uh, it's time to wrap up another edition of FOMO Sapiens. I'm Patrick McGinnis coming at you from AW360 Studios in Times Square. You can find out more about me at patrickmcginnis.com. You can find this, uh, this, this podcast on every place you can find podcasts, but especially on iTunes. I'd be so appreciative if you would uh, subscribe, give me a rating, five stars, if, uh, if you've enjoyed the show and um, in a review. And you can also find The 10% Entrepreneur at Good Booksellers Everywhere. So from New York City, until next time, uh, take care of yourselves.